The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Ah, that was a beautiful Napa Valley pour this morning. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers with Brian Casey and Bart Hansen and our truly special guest today, Tor Kenward from Tor Napa Valley Vineyards. What a beautiful thing and what a beautiful day here in the valley. Welcome. We have a lot of these nice days, don't we? Yeah. Thank you for having me. They've been getting better and better. We were through the rain. Do you think we're going to get any more rain? Yes. Yes, we are, which is amazing. I think there's some coming this weekend on Friday. Excellent. So, uh, Maybe significant? No. I, we're probably out of the, uh, the the famous, what are they calling it now, uh, AR, we used to be accounts receivable. Now it's, at, <laughs> it's atmospheric river or so. Uh, I, we, I think we're done with those, at least I would guess, but you never know. Mother Nature uh, tends us to slap us around when we think we know everything. Today was in Sonoma anyway, and, and I think probably lower Napa it was the same thing. You got up in the morning, it was clear as a bell, and it started to warm up, and the fog just came in from the bay and just kind of moved its way up valley. So, But up here in St. Helena, it's, it's beautiful. You gorgeous. Probably, yeah. Gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you drive around on days like this, and you get how this whole system works. You know, yeah. why you have Chardonnay more over in that part of the world, and right. why you maybe have Cabernet. Right uh, here, uh, it it and you see the fog uh, come in and out, and you, you sort of get it. Yeah, I mean we've we've been talking the last couple of years how you know we've kind of lost our fog pattern and and whatnot, and mm-hmm. it does seem like last year we kind of got the fog pattern back, and looks like it's starting off at least at least today kind of the same. Oh, way, I had so. I had headlights on from Petaluma to Sonoma. Right. And then it sort of cleared up a little bit and then start heading over the hill, of course, going through Carneros. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, these are happy grapes. It was beautiful (laughs) this morning. The drive over was fantastic. Really quite nice. You know, it's a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? Uh, I travel a lot. I've been very fortunate to to travel the world, often talking about wine to groups and, and sitting down with winemakers and other appellations in other parts of the world. And, uh, you never get tired of coming home. Right. You know, we really are so lucky here. Yeah. My other little passion besides wine and and getting to other parts of the world that grow and make wine is fly fishing. So it's oh. the same thing. Huh. You know, I I get to exotic and fun locations, but I always love coming back home. Yeah. Wait, where are you going? Uh, are you going to like Montana or well, Idaho? Well, obviously Montana is a great place to fly fish. Yeah. Uh, Idaho... Colorado uh, and so on. I, I go to Alaska. I try to every year, and this last couple trips have been down to Patagonia. Oh, yeah, so, that's supposed to be amazing. Oh, it's you have more penguins than people in Patagonia, <laughs> and that's a fact. They're, they're, the, the penguin count is higher than the population of uh, homo, sa- homo sapiens. It's have true. you um, fly fished in New Zealand by any chance? I have. I have. You, do you know the story about where the trout came from? 
in New Probably, Zealand? Probably, uh, like most of the trout down in Patagonia, came from the States. Yeah, Sonoma Creek. I didn't know it was from... Yeah, wow. Sonoma Creek. Yeah, um, a lot I, of the um, uh, the trout that's down in Patagonia came from... Uh, I, I It's from California, yeah. I'm pretty darn yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll, there's an article, I'll try to find it, and I'll send it to you to find it interesting. It, um, it, it is amazing, isn't yeah, it, that we've yeah. spread... Yeah, you know, we give them good wine. We give them some of the greatest trout in the world. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Tor, I rode over with uh, Brian this morning, and it seemed like um, you have an incredible history. So, I mean, I've just been around a long time. <laughs> I like the jazz club down in in, uh, in Southern SoCal, Cal. Yeah. I, I really love the fact that uh, I love your cars and being a car freak myself. So, I mean, I love those kinds of things. You have such a beautiful place here in Napa. Look out the front window into this vineyard, and all the flowers are blooming. And every, we're we're right in the. John was getting soft on me on the way over. He spring. has such a romantic. Um, <laughs> feeling about driving through Napa because it, it is it's beautiful we grew up here so Bart and I grew up in Sonoma County but Bart uh, John is a Chicago guy who downtown who uh yeah. you know that's is, why he likes good cars right that's right <laughs> and he's it's that urban thing <laughs> <laughs> it's road America basically uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's my track my home track well he probably grew up with a couple people in the neighborhood that has some pretty cool cars and as a kid, you look, oh, wow, someday, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, now I have an SUV instead. <laughs> <laughs> but I look at Triumph TR6s every single day online. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get one. Was well, that part of your retirement plan, John? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Are <laughs> you, you kidding me? Do you look at uh, Bring a Trailer? I do. Yeah. Yeah. That is a cuckoo site. Bring your own trailer. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, history, it's its amazing. So give us a little background on your getting into wine and everything else. Well, as you might know, um, during COVID, we, uh, we weren't traveling as much as we normally did. And it was a good time to also, because you were sort of closed in and there was a lot of negative stuff, to, to go back and dig into some of that early Napa Valley uh, some of my history. Uh, I've been a vintner now for uh, 49 years and pretty much a half a century. And it gave me a chance to really look back and, and reflect on that. Uh, I started to put some old stories about, you know, the, my, my time with Julia Child and Robert Mondavi and people that were all part of my early years here uh, and became good friends. And uh, I put them online and uh, a, a literary agent, which kind of surprised me, said, you know, have you thought about doing a book? And I got talked into doing a book with a good publisher. Which now, we, is that available? Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. yeah. Got to okay. get you guys some copies. Excellent. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be sure to put a link to it on how people can purchase it. Yeah, uh, with the, when we post the show, um, Bart's Bart's got one. If you want to borrow one, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, here's the and so it kind of surprised me. You know, uh, I I really enjoyed going back and talking about. It's really about those people and, and less so about me, yeah. and also about how Napa Valley. When I first came up here, the the mantra was with the growers and the producers, don't let the sun 
set on the tourists. Get them out of here. Bring them up during the day, but we want our valley at night. I can understand. Yeah, that was, there were no destination restaurants. Uh, there were a few dive bars. Well, you had, you had, what's the name of the one here in town? Uh, it's been there forever. Uh, El Molina. Yeah. Yeah. No, no hotels. Right. No desk. You know, there was the, the, the hot, the one place to maybe eat was the grapevine Inn, Right. And the chutney kitchen, which is Sally Schmidt's early place right. down in Yonville. I mean, you had in, in, in Calistoga, you had the hot springs and stuff, but that was more bohemian. It certainly wasn't people coming to buy wine. It's right? where you sat in mud, right? <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't where you went for a great meal. And, uh, obviously, you know, there were some exciting things happening in wine, but it was really underground. And this whole thing from Napa Valley going from in the early seventies, less than 50 wineries to you know 800 plus brands now yeah i can't believe i mean that's zero to 60 in about two seconds yeah you know it really is when you go from it's only happened in the last 50 years and i was on sort of the front part of that wave i was the vice president at behringer they they said in charge of all the fun because it was building up the private reserve programs and doing the, the really fun thing and then developing a lot of culinary programs where I met Julia Child and a lot of famous chefs and worked with those wonderful people for uh, close to uh, 20, 25 years. Tor, can you talk a little bit about where Behringer was at that point, like the size, who owned it at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know it's, it's changed over the past 50 years. Just touch base on that right now. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to reflect on that because when, when I came to Behringer in the mid seventies, 1970s, uh, it was the Rhine house. And when I took the job, uh, the number one wine that they sold in the Rhine house was a cream sherry. Wow. Because they had a cream sherry recipe for a cake that was very popular at the time. Number two and three was one called Berenblut, which was sort of the the mix of everything left over. Uh, And who knows where all the pieces came from. Not all of it came from Napa Valley. And then the the other one that was extremely popular was an off-dry Riesling called Traubengold. And that actually, most of that came from uh, the the Santa Barbara area, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Large plantings that were down there at that time before that really blossomed. Those were the most popular wines. Wow. So they carved out their own little niche here in, uh, in Napa with, with well, no Cabernet. Well, no, but there, uh, well, we had Cabernet, but that was not the most popular wine. Right. By, it, they had no reserve programs. They had, you know, they were just starting the Knights Valley bottlings, which were, which were evolving into some really good value wines at the time. But in our Chenin Blanc than Chardonnay, probably. Chenin Blanc was very, very popular. Uh, Chardonnay was Pinot Chardonnay. <laughs> Pinot Not, Chardonnay. That's yeah. what everybody, most everybody called it back then. So when I got there, I was sort of the resident wine geek and, uh, they sort of leaned on me and, you know, nowadays the kids coming into the Valley and getting into the industry knew, know a lot more than I did back then. But I was 
studying and reading everything that was available to me and going to classes in Davis and, and then getting a VIT degree while I was working. So they leaned on me to be the, the wine geek because I know European wines too. And, uh, and then sent me to Europe every, every year to sit down with whomever I wanted to sit down with. It was owned by Nestle in those days to answer your question. Huh. And Nestle had bought it in 1971. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah, 1971. And, you know, when I got there, I told you the most popular wines. So Nestle was beginning to very slowly try to turn that around. Uh, And it was just, you know, it it was a period of time where the spark had already been lit. The investments were beginning to be made, which is very important. And uh, you had people on board like Myron Nightingale, mm-hmm. and he'd hired this this guy out of Fresno uh, to help him out, whose family had been in the wine industry for a couple generations, Ed Sabragia. And, and, and it's so amazing. Another early, you know, wine luminary that went to fresno like right there were so many that went to fresno davis wasn't oh, really putting anybody out there at that point yeah um yeah when i wrote the book i did a lot of research too uh yeah you know it was interesting you know who was very instrumental in getting fresno up and running with a with an incredible winemaking uh department uh was uh joe heights oh yeah Joe was really, you know, uh, very instrumental in getting that whole program really up and running. A lot of people don't know that. Did I hear right that you used to pitch a tent up here? Well, you know, I, I was, I was poor, you know, I, I, I would, I I had, I had the passion of a rich man, but, uh, I was, I didn't have, didn't have the bank account. And uh, I because well, you spent everything you had on your car. I was spent. No, <laughs> I, I I bought when I came back from Vietnam and fin- finished school. I took my Vietnam money, and we were talking about it, I bought an MG uh, B, and I just loved that car. And uh, <laughs> and I camped out when I came to Napa Valley because both the Napa great campgrounds, and I could spend more money on wine. So, that sounds good. Yeah, it, it worked. Priorities, John. It, it worked. <laughs> He's got them straight. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just fell in love with this valley in the 70s, coming up and doing that. Pitching a tent, uh, getting on a bike in the morning, biking up to Calistoga for breakfast, seeing three or four of the, you know, less than 50 wineries winemakers that were in napa valley during the day and then trying to find a decent meal at night and what was your favorite winery back then uh, well you know i i visited uh, stag's leap when warren would actually show his face uh and i i actually have my notebook from from those days Excellent. with all my notes Wait, were you taking I, tasting notes? You were, absolutely. Yeah, I could. I might be able to. You know, I think it's at work right now. I could show you. It's a little white book that I have yeah. with all my notes. Uh, I was a big fan of Joe Heitz's wines. Yeah. So I always, I'd have to say that would, if I was going to pick a favor to be the Heitz wines, 
Uh, he was releasing the, the wines from the late 60s, early 70s at that time uh, that I'd come up. And Joe would always be there in the tasting room, most all the time. Uh, so you'd go in there, and, and Joe, he was very cantankerous. And, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of the early ones were, I mean, I, Joe I, in particular, I, I adored the guy, but he was, uh, uh, one of my favorite stories that wasn't favored early on was I, I went in and he, he, he knew that I was interested in wine and, and, you know, had a genuine interest and he poured me a wine and he said, what do you think about this? And I went, Wow, that Joe, and I was sincere. That may be one of the greatest wines I've ever had in my entire life. It's it just stunning. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's really good. And I said, can I buy some? Now, the Heights wines in those days were all under $20. Yeah, that's but right. that was that was that Martha's. Martha's yeah. Vineyard. Oh, under right? $20. Yeah. And that was a huge investment for me to, to spend <laughs> $20. So... Um, and no industry discount at that time. No, absolutely not. You could get free tastes in all the tasting rooms. Yeah. They weren't charging, but no industry taste. Uh, and I wasn't really industry at that time because it was in the mid-70s. Mm. And uh, uh, I said, Joe, I'll, I'll buy whatever, you know, if you can give me a couple of bottles, it'd be great. And he looked at me long and hard and he said, mm, Tor, hmm. You know, I think I can get more money for it if I release it next year. So, sorry, you're going to have to wait a little <laughs> bit longer. And I just felt like I had been teased, yep. you know. Yeah, and man. and I was a little bitter about Joe and, and that whole thing for a while. Finally got over it that he wouldn't sell me that wine. And he did sell that wine, and it was over $20 when he did release it. So he made more money on it the next year. But man, I speaking of cantankerous, did you ever know old man Gergich? I still he's alive. Yeah, he's wow. turned. Yeah. I'm invited to his hundredth birthday party. What? Yeah, I think he turns a hundred April six, I think. Wow. Don't ask me why I know these things. <laughs> but I, I think he does, and I think I'm going to one of the birthday parties that they're throwing for him. So um hmm. yeah. I think that was our first stop in Napa in 1987 and our second was Heights. So we hit a couple of good ones right off the bat. Don't you wish you had invested in a little more wine? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what the 68 Marthas is going for right now, <laughs> Probably, but I'll say this to everybody listening to the show. If you have a bottle out there and you're interested in selling it, you have a buyer here, so just please get in. Uh, they'll give you their my contact information before we're done here. Oh yeah, let me know. I'm I'm very interested in buying any bottle I can find of that wine. I still love it. Tori, you've got enough bottles. We just toured your cellar. I think you're doing okay. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> there were a couple of heights in there that I saw. Quite a few heights yeah. in there. Not enough 68s in there. <laughs> Uh, and, and more of whatever that vintage was that uh, Joe was pouring for you that you wanted. That's that was your, the 68. That was yeah, the 68. That was the 68. Oh, yeah. okay. Hey, Tor, we should touch base on this first wine here. Yeah. We can tell story, old Napa Valley stories. And well, we want the stories. But yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I'll finish a little bit about <laughs> that, ahead, too. Yeah. Um, so I, I got talked into doing the book. We did the book. 
I was very happy the way it came out. And then Good Morning America put it on and put the book up on the marquee in Times Square. Really? Forbes Fantastic. did a, two pages on the book. Um, what? A, oh, Departures did a three-page piece on you know my history in the book. Uh, and the, the New York Times three weeks ago did a review on the book. All positive so far. It's really beautifully done. And um, I've kind of more scanned it than anything else and read bits in here. here read bits here and there. Uh, but it's really well done. And it's amazing that you like took all those pictures in a time where you actually had to go get a camera and take pictures that you still have all those pictures. That's, that's great. Yeah. Well, I, no, it is weird that I had enough of those pictures. Right. Well, I've, I've heard a rumor that we're, yeah, hey, Lulu. We're, you're, you're fine. That's, that's Lulu, everybody. Yeah. We're, we're used to having a dog on the show. Right. Many. <laughs> A dog or a, or a uh, diesel truck going by. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happens every day over at Sam's. Right. Pretty much every show. Right. So th there's a rumor that they might actually be making a, either a documentary or some sort of mini series based on the book. Oh, wow. So we need to ask about who he wants to play him. Right. <laughs> Where's that? We've, we've heard rumors of possibly a documentary or mini series. Uh, based on the book and so we're, yep. we're curious about who um who you would want to play you um at different uh ages <laughs> i i think and it's it is interesting there is some uh, very serious talk about this right now and there are some a producer and a couple of really good writers putting together this thing the way it's going to end up is it looks like it's going to be a real documentary. Okay. So it's going to be a lot of, you know, old photos and archival stuff and, yeah. and so on. Uh, who would want, who would want to play me? Well, <laughs> well, well they get, they'd have access to some good wine. So you might get well, a few. Right. Out there, yeah. If it's a documentary, who would you want to narrate it? Narrate it. That's well. I they probably and unfortunately they're looking at me to to narrate it. I mean, who's so better to do it <laughs> than yeah. you? But uh, yeah, Orson Welles. <laughs> there you <Yeah>, go. Right. <laughs> Classic. Mm -hmm. So 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 that would actually be starting in in like seventy five and just doing a, um, a like a a complete history of, of well, Napa Valley going forward until until now. It, it's interesting because I got these Hollywood types and they're smart writers. Uh, uh, they're very successful people uh, working with Apple and Netflix and so on. They're yeah. looking at this thing. And I think the way that they want to do it is last year in 21, uh, we had the redo of the Paris tasting, right? Uh, Judgment heard, in Napa. You did okay. We did very well. <laughs> how, uh, how well did you do, Tor? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> uh, we did come in number one on the red wine. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Let's give a... <laughs> well, here, here's what's great. You know, we, we keep doing these Paris tasting redos with the Bordeaux. And, and this time they opened it up to one uh, South American wine. Uh, really? Yeah. And in fact, I'll want to find something here before we're done and show it to you. But anyway, Mouton was in there and yep. boom, boom, boom. So 10 wines like before, uh, I think there were three or four Bordeaux, one from South America and then one from Australia. 
and then I think there were three, max four Napa Valley cabs. One, two, three, and four, I do remember, we were number one with the uh, Beckstoffer Tokolon. Yep. Uh, they were all 2016 wines. Uh, number two was Scarecrow. So one and two, Napa Valley. Three was Label Lascaz. Uh, and then four was Colgan. So, I mean, out of the top four slots, three were Napa Valley wines. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is. It is. Yeah. It's outstanding. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to the wine we're drinking. Okay. Uh, it's white. I think yeah. it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I cold. Mean, the, the HS... Um, uh, is is this uh, from Hyde? Yes. Yeah. Well, we we Lulu's having Lulu. fun this morning. I might. I think the gate's closed. I might let her out. <laughs> Back to us, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Lulu's getting put down. Yeah. We actually, John, we passed this vineyard on the way yeah. here um, as we were coming down to twenty nine. Right? Yeah. Coming down to. Yeah, the, the Napa Highway. Yeah, yeah. you're it's, right, it's, Brian. I am a softie about driving over here. It's, well, it's also John because Valentine's Day is in a couple of days, and you know you're. I'm probably, thinking romantic. Yeah. There's, always, there's, there's always the dog to remind you you're lying. <laughs> we've we've got two corgis at our place, and they are barkers. Yeah. Okay. If a leaf drops down the block, they want me to <laughs> they know. know about about it. It. Lulu's not usually that crazy, but uh, she uh, she's having fun with something out there right now. Yeah. The wine, um, the Chardonnay program is very small uh, in our book, uh, but I, I used to spend time in those early 70s when I was going to Europe a lot with, uh, in Burgundy, uh, you know, very fortunate to have access at the Domaine Romani Conti and spending time with them asking how, you know, they made their Montrachet. You I think know, John knocked on the door one time and they told him to go away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They usually need to have a reservation, especially <laughs> nowadays. But um, anyway, uh, Noblet at the time uh, was uh, very open about how he made the Chardonnays. And that's sort of the, the, the mold and the way that we make the Chardonnays now, which is very little intervention, uh, natural yeasts. So you're working with a microflora in an area that you're familiar with. This is Larry Hyde's vineyard. Most everybody listening to the show knows Larry Hyde. A lot of people don't know how influential he's been with preserving the, the clonal system right. that we have with uh, certainly Chardonnays. He's allowed Davis now. He's, he's been the guy who's really spearheaded that program at Davis where we have all these now, that clonal material where we can, uh, you know, really look at Chardonnay in a way that very few places, if any place other than than California, has to observe Chardonnay. Yeah. Anyway, so we work with Larry uh, with the uh, Shot Cluster Wente, uh, and we're working a little bit with the new Calera stuff that he's got. Marco Bear loves that Calera stuff. Uh, we, we like a combination of the two, and the HS is uh old vine larry selection stuff from mostly from his vineyard and a little bit from his friends that's about 32 years old down the awesome. road awesome yeah, yeah it's delicious and and some people probably don't even know that tor makes white wine 
Right. This um, is true. Yeah. This is true. I don't think it's something that's totally out there. You guys probably don't make a lot of it. Most of it goes to the mailing list. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, probably a total of uh, uh, 700 cases, all okay. the Chardonnay that we do. Yeah. How much is uh, direct to consumer for Tor? Uh, we're about 75%. Yeah. Wow. That's a, such a good trend. I mean, being like Kelly Corbett said last week, yeah. you know, it's, it's so nice to be able to have wine sent to you. Get right. on a club and just, you know, you get it all the time. It's just excellent. Well, and this is sought after wine, John. So it's not Absolutely. like. Um, I understand. Yeah. They don't have a tasting room where they're having to sell people on, on, um, on tour cap. No. Um, it's people knocking at the door wondering if they can have some. Well, and speaking of uh, sought after wines. How many exactly hundred point wines have you made? <laughs> you know, I, I I have a new. Uh, and how many people get asked that question? Right. <laughs> right. Well, it was it wasn't until maybe um, you know a couple months ago I actually somebody asked the question, so we did some research on that. So we have uh, ten one hundred point wines. I mean, leave it to Napa to have like oh well, I have a four hundred point wine. <laughs> Four one hundred. Well, we did wines. that. We Congratulations did. Yeah, on no, that, we, by we, the way. We had uh, in 2018, uh, the Black Magic, which is a very small production, sort of uber cuvee that we make. Uh, we uh, we got four 100-point scores on that. So I had a friend of mine that's a very smart marketing person for the Black Platinum you know, Amex thing. He says, you should call that your 400-point wine. <laughs> so I went, oh. Okay, I'll I'll borrow that for fun. Right, and uh, we did we did have some fun with that. We used to joke about that. I remember Ian Blessing, who was a, a friend of ours, who used to be one of the on the Somme team at French Laundry. And when we would really like a wine, we would tell people that it was a hundred and one point wine, yeah. and say, "Oh yeah, Parker loved this so much that he gave it a hundred and one <laughs> points." I've done that a few <laughs> times too. That that is kind of fun. I mean, all of us in the industry have had many times in our careers we just go i don't want to hear any more of this score stuff uh, we all know that it's a marketing thing really for the most part the scores have crept up a little bit over the years uh and you know th there used to be two major critics two major publications that sort of ruled the roost and now there's so many other yeah. ways that people discover wine and then find information on wine yeah, but uh, which is which is a great thing for our industry. I think it is, and yeah. and it's why there's 800 plus wineries in Napa Valley, right? Because people are putting you know a stake in the ground and trying to carve their their way. So yeah, no, I I, I kind of like that we've leveled the playing field a little bit. Uh, I I like that you're able to access a lot of consumer reviews now too. Mm -hmm. So it just isn't a yeah. certain number of gatekeepers in there. Yeah. I think it's all good. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, um, the more information that you can get that's honest information, uh, the better. Right. Well, it's such a shame spiral now. Now that, you know, if your wine gets a 91, you wonder if you should even put that out there in the world. Right. Um, because you're, you know, everyone's looking for, because who got the 96, who got 95. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, 95 and above is the real target yeah. um, now for wines, but Tor, we skipped over a whole bunch of totally. uh, stuff here. 
Um, well, we, there's kinda, never going to be enough time, Jeff. I know, and I know we kind of jumped to the book and jumped to this white wine, but the people that don't know who you are probably are wondering, how do you go from um, pitching a tent in Napa to working for Behringer and then all of a sudden have this brand that is making 100-point Cabernets in Napa sourcing out of the most sought-after vineyards? Well, I, I think right place, right time has a lot to do with it. There's a certain amount of luck involved. At least I feel there is. For sure. um, and I was very, very lucky. At the time that I came and the position that I was put in, uh, it was, that's where the luck is. You know? you know, another part about the wine industry, and we can't, I, I really feel very strongly about this. The people that have succeeded over the last 50 years or so are people at least that 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 laid the foundation that worked their butts off yeah so you know i was very lucky uh i was in a position at behringer as vice president in charge of the fund uh and a uh, a voice in the wine industry i did 60 minutes i did a lot of the network stuff where you could go out and talk about wine to large groups and and, and so on. And then when I started my own brand, when I had a little bit of money, after we sold the company to the Australians, yeah. God bless you. Thank you for doing that. Um, um, you know, I, I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, we're completely family owned. Uh, we don't have any outside silent partners. So uh, the board of directors is usually a blurry mirror in the morning. Yeah. You know, as you're shaving and, uh, it, it's, I just, I'm a very lucky guy. I've, I, I don't make wines to fit a marketing, you know, peg. Yeah. We make wines. If Jeff and I fall in love with a wine, we create a new wine. Uh, if we want to chase Syrah and Grenache for a little bit, we've done that. Yeah. You know, we sort of just followed our passion, what we want to do. And, uh, and the last 20 years that we've had this brand, we, you know, we're winning these tastings, we're getting very high scores, we're getting the 100 points and so on. We've created a little bit of a cult, which, yeah. is, which, is, which is fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's good to have your wine sold before it's, before it's released. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, I mean, that's a good business plan. I still love it when people send me, uh, you know, an email now and then or a text or something with a picture of my wine that they had for a special occasion. Yeah. You know, you go, I'm doing stuff that's making people happy right. yeah. Yeah. and, and, and they're having fun and, and they, they like to be part of, you know, our, our, our family, if you will. Uh, it's, it's how many businesses out there can you say? you know, an owner can have as much fun as I'm having. Yeah. And you mentioned Jeff. Will you talk a little bit about how, how did you decide um, that he was going to be the winemaker? That's a story that not a lot of people know. The first winemaker I hired was Thomas Rivers Brown. Oh. A lot of people don't know that. And uh, Thomas was just getting started at the time and just expanding at the time too, taking on uh, new projects, quite rapidly in those early years still he's he's taking on projects uh and and he's doing a killer job he's, you know thomas is an amazing winemaker but his first or second lieutenant uh was jeff ames mm -hmm. 
Uh, he had Mike Smith and Jeff working for him at the time. And he had sort of put Jeff on my project. Uh, and Jeff and I and Thomas shared one thing. We loved to rip corks and we loved wine. And we liked European wines. We liked wines from all over the world. We just were all highly curious, interested people. And uh, that's one reason I gravitated toward Thomas. Thomas in the third year uh, said, you know, Jeff's making your wines and would love just a full-time project. Would you be interested in making Jeff the, you know, the head winemaker? I said, let's give it a try. As long as he's looking over your, your shoulder, great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the first, second year, Jeff was knocking it out of the park and I had a full-time guy there just dedicated to my project. So. And what were you making it? Was it just Cabernet at first? Yeah, it was. You yeah. know, Jeff and I did a little side project with some Syrah and Grenache here and there. And, and, and I know, and I'm totally intrigued by that. And I want, you said you might have a bottle around here somewhere, which made me tingle. We may have but, to, yeah, we may have wait. to dig into the cellar before. <laughs> but but well, I can pause. Don't worry. I mean, we saw your cellar. You got a fair amount of uh, Chateau Neuf. Um, stuff in there so yeah. we know you're um i'm a roni you're you're a Rhone guy among many um, things so what i mean those of us that love syrah and love grenache it's it's always one of those bittersweet things that we love it but it's it's that it's never been the it the it girl no um, which we're actually fine with because it gives us more opportunities to taste well it. but honestly we'd like to sell some more of it though too. right yes of course <laughs> <laughs> so so you guys just kind of played around with the syrah and the grenache i i think danny was saying you got the syrah from um hudson um vineyard i don't know where yeah over the years i did hudson we uh there's uh produce there's a grower in bennett valley we worked with uh with syrah and grenache i've i've gone down to west paso Mm -hmm. and uh, played around with some of those crazies down there yeah and i say that with uh, admiration for sure uh <laughs> and uh you know we we've we've played around with sierra foothills jeff's played around with uh mendocino so it, it it's i i i've made the last three grenaches i've made i've called the brand something else it's not a tour wine it's called mm -hmm. chasing windmills which is the okay. referencing Don Quixote, yeah, sure. which is the way I feel I have gone about the business is chasing windmills because yeah. it's crazy yeah. in, in, in this world. You have to be passionate. But so, you're the, you're the perfect sort of um, torchbearer for Grenache or Syrah because you already have the reputation for making a hundred point wines. And so then people would say, Oh, if, if he's making Syrah or Grenache, he must know something that we don't. <laughs> well, and then on top of it, what do you think about Grenache growing here in Napa? Um, especially with, you know, the way the climate is possibly getting a little warmer over here. And, um, well, one is, uh, don't, don't plant Grenache to chase global warming. Okay. I, I wouldn't recommend anybody to do that right. or Tempranillo or all the other things that you've read about. Right. Uh, you know, we're going to find ways with trellising, positioning, water management, canopies, uh, row orientation. We're going to find ways to very slowly uh, evolve with the global warming here. That's my strong feeling. Yeah. So Cabernet is going to be king for a while. So all of you Rhone lovers, which I'm 
part of. Right. Napa may not be your home. Right. So, <laughs> uh, that being said, we all know that there are some little plots of land uh, and people that have little secret projects here. Yeah. And I just think those people are the top people. I just love people like that. Yeah. That follow their passion. They're going to make a lot more money planning something else beside right. Syrah Grenache, but they continue to do it because they love what they're doing. Yeah. May that always be the case yeah. in Napa, Sonoma, wherever. If you have people that can make a great wine and it's maybe not that popular, but they're passionate about it, they're the heroes. Yeah. I think it's great. No, and those are a lot of the people that we have on the show are people that have day jobs working for larger wineries, but it's the, we have them on because it's the little passion projects that they do on the side. And that's what we get super um, interested in as well. I, I, if you're in the wine industry, that's what pushes our buttons. Yeah. If you're really passionate about wine, yeah. it's, it's the little guys, you know, following true passion, yeah. true interest. It's yeah. not this sheer commercial thing in their heads. Yeah. Well, you know, I like to think that's where, you know, I'm still at after all these years. I have to tell you, my best friends in the wine industry are people exactly like that. Yeah. I mean, also the new consumers that are coming online and they are coming in online, regardless of what the press says. I mean, they're, they're going to get there, but they may also be drawn more to other varieties than just Napa Valley cab because they have to get started somewhere. But they'll eventually get there, right? Like, I mean, w just as you said, you know, you like to drink things other than the wines that you make. And so it's about that sense of discovery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what that's what still creates interest in the consumer. Yeah. Uh, somebody was I was talking to somebody a couple days ago uh, from uh, uh, what was it? Decanter magazine, uh, the rights for Decanter. And we got into this conversation and I, I was quoted widely in the Wall Street Journal when that article came out about Napa getting too expensive. Right. And uh, we, we were talking about other areas where, you know, you could still walk into a tasting room and, and the winemaker or the owner is going to sit down with you and open a few bottles of wine, which is the Napa Valley that I remember. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the 70s, even into the 80s. Uh, and he called it the feeder areas, which is an interesting term. But we, yeah. we ended, and I ended up saying, you know, it is those areas that we needed 50 years ago. It's those areas we need today. Yeah. And it's those areas that we're going to need tomorrow to keep the interest and the passion in wine. Yeah. So God bless the Sierra foothills. Right. Go there. Right. Mendocino. Right. Go there. Willamette Valley. Go there. Right. These are all areas where you can learn, you can taste, you can, you know, you can listen to other people's dreams come true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Santa Barbara County and Paso Robles for all those people that live in Southern California, if they don't have to get on a plane and come to Napa or Sonoma, at least they're going there and they're doing just what you're saying. They're experiencing wine. They're drinking wine. They're, you know, they're getting started in it. And that's what we need. Yeah. I got a dog that's uh, coming inside. No problem. So much. Sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm going to ask a couple questions about quality of fruit, guys. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pour the uh, red. Yeah. Oh, all right, John is. Uh... Yeah, pour the cap. Yeah. There we go. Let's talk about it. I mean, talking about smaller wine producers. If you're, uh, I mean, we, you, all of us here at the table love wine, so you know, yeah. we we can go down a, a billion different rabbit holes. Right. Since you have produced so many 100-point wines and high-quality wines, and everybody loves them, I want to ask about how you judge quality of the fruit, because obviously you're using incredible fruit, but how do you actually judge that? You and Jeff. Well, when you say fruit, I think you're you're referencing also vineyard, aren't you? Absolutely. Okay. Both. Because uh, the the vineyard to me is is really the beginning, and I, you could get a lot of winemakers that say it's the beginning and the end. Uh, and I mean, here perfect segue. We're pouring some Beckstoffer Tokelon right now. Uh, certainly, as famous a vineyard for Cabernet in the Napa Valley as any that we have. Uh, certainly that you can have more than one producer in, right. that's for sure. Right. Stunning bouquet on this also. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and so we'll, we'll start with the vineyard. Uh, when Jeff and I are looking for uh, vineyards to work with, uh, we, we try to, I mean, you're, you're basing, if you can get into a vineyard that you love, is the wines that you've tasted from the vineyard. Are they resonating with you? Are they something that you want to be a part of and that you could even have any context with? The two major vineyards we're working with right now are vineyards that I've followed for, if you really want to be, if you want to look back far enough since the beginning I've been in Napa Valley because they've been producing great wines since the... Uh, the 70s. Sure. Uh, one is Beckstoffer Tokelon. We've had up to 10 uh, blocks that we work with, work with in Tokelon, which is, I don't, I honestly don't know of another producer that's worked with more blocks than we have in Tokelon. Um, and the other is Vine Hill Ranch. Yeah. Big fan of Vine, yeah. Vine Hill Ranch. Yeah. Both of those vineyards had very, very long histories of producing great wines. So, you know, you love to, to base your decisions of choosing that as a partner in business based on a history of excellence. Uh, and then, our, obviously, who are the current stewards? You have uh, the Phillips family. Uh, in fact, we're going to dinner tonight with Bruce and Heather, uh, who own the vineyard. Uh, and... They are great stewards of Vine Hill Ranch. They've put Vine Hill Ranch along with their family members into a really incredible place right now. That is, saw at, you, you could say, I, I think in the next 10 years, it's going to be on par with, with fame with, with Tokelon. Once people get more familiar with the great wines that are starting to come out of there with yeah. other producers again. Yeah. So, uh, we, we look to history, uh, and, and then it's a matter of, unfortunately, as a winemaker, it takes you probably really, I think, five years 
of making that wine yeah. before you feel, I mean, you can get lucky. Uh, I, I th we started in Toklan in 05. Jeff and I have said this to ourselves a couple times. I, I think we didn't really hit stride till 08 or 09 mm. with that vineyard. So it's a matter of also patience and, and experimenting around. Yeah, because are, are you and Jeff able to decide what days you want to pick? Oh, absolutely. Okay. That's very much a part At of those your... prices, Brian. Yeah. We're... <laughs> now we, so, we, we, so we don't get to pick the prices. <laughs> yeah, no, so at those you... prices, you bet you get to pick the yes, days. Yes, so no aside, we're used to kind of dealing with people sometimes. They tell you to come pick it up. No, <laughs> um, no. If we're paying that much yeah. and you're right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we have the privilege of saying, okay, yeah. it's now. And do you find that you're picking earlier or later than most people? We have been, Tokelon's always an interesting story. You could write, a, you could do a, a, a little bit of a, a, a short movie about it because is when you pick in Tokelon. Yeah. Uh, so when do the Schrader bins show up? Right. Or when do the Harlan, because Harlan buys fruit from Tokelon. Right. When do the Harlan bins show up? Yeah. Everybody pays attention. It's right. like your antenna's out. Who's picking first? Who's picking last and so on we have one year which was 2009 we were the first pick and we were the last mm -hmm. so just depending on the different blocks the or, blocks and yeah. how how they're maturing yeah literally in 2009 we were the very first and we were the very last yeah <laughs> Tor, my um, when I started, um, Milo Shepard, his family owned the Jack London Vineyard in, mm -hmm. on Sonoma Mountain, and Milo used to always love to come and say to the winemaking team, "I've been farming this property my entire life, and you guys been getting it for a few years, and you think you have it figured out, you know." <laughs> and his point was is that he's still trying to learn from the vineyard for the growing part, and that the seller or the winery needs to understand that it's going to be a lifetime for them figuring out the vineyard. You know, yeah, and and in in all honesty, uh, they could spend their lifetime trying to figure out the wines from the vineyard, and they may not have it all figured out by the time that right, you know, one generation passes it on right. to the other one. Yeah, so it's an incredible evolution, and I think it's one of those things that adds to like how great this industry is. Yeah, you know, occasionally I I read some of the the uh, the BS out there uh, that you read wineries put out that they have a certain winemaker or a consultant who's a pure genius right. and uh, knows everything and is the know-all, see-all, the god to winemaking <laughs> and, and so on. And man, it ain't, there's nobody out there in this entire, entire business that has that kind of magic. Right. Nobody, right. not Thomas Rivers Brown, not Michelle Roland, not uh, Philippe Melka, nobody out there, or Jeff Ames, right. my winemaker, or me. Right. We are, the best of us are still learning. Yeah. And if we're not paying attention to new lessons, then we are going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well stated. Yeah. And what did you guys decide? I, I think I was watching a um, tasting that you were doing with um, with James Suckling, and you sort of kind of let it slip that obviously you guys weren't releasing 2020s. Um, yeah. But but I know that some people over here are, um, any, regardless of pick dates. And that's, you know, it's not a conversation where I'm trying to get um, 
um, you know, ruffle anyone's feathers, but what was your decision-making process on that vintage? Uh, we definitely knew the exposure to smoke in the, in the places that we were picking and making yeah. wines from. So I, I think everything in 17 and 20, uh, to me is really, uh, location based. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people that produced wines in those same locations. I've tasted some of those and, um, I, I, even though we passed on it, uh, and you know, we made that decision, I encourage people to try those wines and, and see what they, what they think. You know, I have, I have some, <laughs> I have a couple friends I'm thinking of that made twenties. Uh, one is the McDonald brothers and they really don't know if they're going to release it or not, but you know, they make incredible Cabernets and they're part of the original Tokelon. Uh, two amazing brothers that are making some of the, the best Cabernets in Napa Valley. They made it and they don't really know they like the wine, yeah. what they're going to do with it. Uh, I personally have not tasted it, uh, but my guess is it's pretty good. Right. Whether it's great, I, uh, who knows? Right. I, I'm not sure that they think it's great, but no. they made it and, and they think it's a good wine. I think there might be some really good wines in the 20 and fine. I, yeah. you know, I, I think the consumer is always going to have a cloud that they, they feel is over that vintage. Yeah. And I think that that will certainly influence buying decisions. So there's that, uh, you know, for us, we just did not want to take the gamble. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I never, ever, when I started my brand ever wanted to go to anybody's house where they ran to their cellar to pull out one of my wines and I would have to go, Oh no, not that vintage you know? <laughs> right. or that wine. I never, ever yeah. wanted to do that. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to make wines and that was sort of a mantra with me that, you know, as I travel and people pull out or send me pictures or whatever of what they're, they're like that. I, 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 I had a wine or a, a vintage or something that I wasn't really proud of. Yeah. Cause it sort of really dampens everything. Right. So I didn't want to take that gamble in, in, in 20. Yeah. But there, yeah, I, I think people, consumers should give it a try. Well, it's going to be a really weird vintage because some people are releasing. So there's going to be access maybe to some of the wines that people wouldn't normally get to have because it is 2020. So they'll, they might get to try a bottle of Screaming Eagle. I don't know for the, for the first time. Um, is, is Eagle making one? For sure. I think uh, James actually did a tasting with them um, last week. Okay. Um, so they're going to put that in. But you're in a unique position. I mean, you don't if you don't have to put them out. Um, but I, I know there's some other producers where they have a wine club. Everything's sort of sold. And then what do you do if you don't have a library to offer to people? Is you yeah. Um, you're, it's a it's a bad position to be in. Yeah, financially, it's really, really tough. I mean, we, we took a hit. Uh, and a lot of our peers took a hit too. And those that didn't take a hit and want to sell it, I'm, I'm actually supportive uh, of yeah. them. You know, I, I think, uh, it's really always up to the consumer to make the right. final decisions right. on these yeah. things. And that's the way it should be. I got to say one other producer of mine that did do a 20, which I, I brings a smile on my face. He's, he's a bit of an eccentric. He's a good winemaker too. And a friend, Aaron Pott. So his wine, he's 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 actually the reason for the. uh, So his wine, he's actually got a name for his wine. He's going to release a twenty 
20 uh, red wine. He's going to call it smoking pot. Of right. course he is. <laughs> yeah. You got to laugh at that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, since we were talking about heights at $20 right. and you being uh, in, crazy in, in, in interviews <laughs> about Napa pricing being outpricing everybody. Um, what do you think about the, We had heard the term neighbor pricing where, well, my neighbor is getting $400, so I can get $400, and it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think the consumer, again, is going to be the one that decides. So if if Napa, with its hotel rooms, its restaurants, with its wines, overprices itself, you know, ultimately, uh, it's, we, we live in a free market, which is we're so lucky that we, we have this system that we live in uh, and if, you know, myself or others uh, overprice ourselves, we could be out of business. So I, I'm, I love the free market. So, uh, you know, if you have somebody that says, well, my neighbor is making a $400 Cabernet, I need to do that. You know, more power to them, I guess. Go to it, but if you're a new kid on the block, and you're 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 asking me, is that something I should do? I would tell you no, right? Because you're the new kid on the block, and you got to prove yourself first. Uh, but again, I, I am old enough now, where I I don't judge people a lot anymore. <laughs> yeah, but you're not resting on your laurels, you know. I mean, you're still producing unbelievable wine. Yeah, and we're selling them, and we're not raising the prices uh, every year. Uh, and we we have a we have a really really uh, loyal uh, mailing list. So, do you think it's silly that they're getting the price they do at Screaming Eagle and or I mean even places? Harlan Wines? But John, there's a and there's also it's really funny that I mean we. Um, we just went into Paradigm the other day and, mm -hmm. and had lunch with Ren, and mm -hmm. and he's still selling his wines for, you know, a hundred dollars or under. Um, That's great. And then you you look across his vineyard though, and you're and you're looking up up at, on the hill there, up, up at Harlan territory where they're selling their wines probably for eight hundred a bottle. Ouch. Um, or I think it's more than that now. Where does it stop? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it, now now you're getting into some areas that get out of our, our, our comfortable wine geekdom conversation right. okay. yeah. and you start getting into serious marketing. So yeah. there is luxury brand marketing. Yes, there is. Uh, and, uh, I was just talking at a Super Bowl party last night. I was talking to a couple, uh, there were, uh, you know, obviously spouses and, and women in there that were talking about their May pricing on their bags. Broken and, bag for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, well, from my point of view, <laughs> I, I would say if you're able to get a hundred thousand dollars for a shop for a bag, a handbag, that that is brilliant luxury <laughs> you're marketing, right? Right. Because right. look at what it costs them to make that bag. Yeah. So that is luxury branding marketing, and you know, uh, Harlan Screaming Eagle right now, and there's others in there. That is their, that's their business plan, is luxury branding marketing. And it, it's a complicated game. 
because I know the I know how the innards look a little bit on that. Uh, it's a game that takes strategy. It's a game of a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Uh, it's just a different ball game. Yeah. Well, look at Ferrari and and Bugatti and Maserati and you know they've they've launched those at now three hundred. Well, plus they're they're no they're no longer owned by single families. Yeah. They're they're now owned by uh, corporations. Ferrari's gone public. Um, and you know it is and lamborghini's part of is it audi yeah. and that large group so i mean the, the, they have now entered into you need to make more and still hold your pricing and that's an interesting yeah. game of luxury marketing when you can make more and you can hold your pricing uh on a product that the scarcity part of it, imagine scarcity part of it, right, is uh, very much uh, part of, a big part of the game plan. Yeah, because I I think I, I'm a big I think it's great that Screaming Eagles getting what it is. But that's a good size vineyard. Yeah, and right. they're they're making they're making I don't know they're selling some of the fruit off. I know at least that's what they used to do, but it's a good size vineyard. Yeah, uh, Harlan's got a he's he's making a, a lot of different wines now yeah and they're they, they it harlan's a much bigger brand than not mine yeah. is. it adds all those little ones add up to a lot of wine yes they do yeah and and you know bill and his team he has got a great team yeah and certainly the quality end of it is what they're they're constantly shooting for but they've entered into the business world of luxury branding. Yeah. And it it's just a different world. And, you know, I I don't have a big team and my it's not my it's, it's not my area of expertise really. I understand it a little bit, but it's not what I want to do. Well it seems like a like a tightrope act. I mean, sometimes you're the it girl. You're Screaming Eagle or Pappy Van Winkle or Pliny the Elder. Um, but I remember I've, I've worked in restaurants my whole life and, and sometimes when you get the Michelin rating, it, it's a blessing and a curse because you, you get the two stars, but then the, the chef who was already going bald, um, was, was like, holy shit, now we got to wrench this thing up to another level. And every night I'm going to be sweating bullets, um, wondering who is at table 10? Is it the, the critic for such and such or, um, it's nice when you can, you know, especially when you're dealing with mother nature, when you can just release the best wines that you can make and hopefully people appreciate them. And, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and it sounds like I have some judgment on the luxury branding brands that are in Napa. It didn't sound in the like world. No, 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 not at all. But, no. uh, it, you know, I, what I'm trying to say, it's just a different world. Yeah. And, for whether it's Hermes bags or uh, whether it's Petrus or DRC or you know whatever um, Le Pen um, that you know holds some very crazy pricing relative to the rest of the market around it. In most of those cases right now, you're looking at very very well funded. There's yeah. a lot of, in most cases, very, very deep pockets. Yeah. 
And you don't need to have a revenue stream every year that pays the family bills. Yeah. You, you have a complex, more of a complex financial system. But isn't that us. weird, though, is who's feeding who? Is it now that we've got this whole marketing team, do we need to keep feeding them so we're raising the prices to build the hype as opposed to just getting rid of them and let's just let the chips fall where they may? Well, you know, the people that do luxury branding well are very smart people yeah. that, that, I mean, just like the Super Bowl. You hopefully have some pretty good coaches out there that, that get you to that position. Yeah. And they've got some smart people working for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, it keep to me, at the end of the day, it keeps things interesting. Right, that's for sure. Yeah. Right. So I, that's great. Right. Sure I, does. You know, I, yeah. I, I, my, my wife will never buy uh, a $100,000 bag, at least to my knowledge. That's <laughs> hey, Tor, can we go back to something you said earlier about, you know, older Napa Valley? Um, where the idea was to get the tourist up here and then send them away. Right. Um, and we've certainly got to the point where that changed with some amazing resorts and amazing restaurants. And this is, you know, the wine country maybe in general, but specifically because you're familiar with Napa Valley. And then to the point of where, so, so the wineries were there to provide the wine and to get the people there. The resorts and the restaurants were there for the hospitality. And now we've seen a lot of wineries have become hospitality. Yep. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And, and then, you know, of course, that a lot of that changed with COVID because people weren't here for a while. But as we return to it, you know, how important you don't you have a place to have tastings, as Danny's told us and. Mm -hmm. um, we hope some of our listeners will come see you guys sometime, but you know, just in general hospitality, like, is there a place that the wineries should let the hotels and the restaurants take care of and, um, wineries have their place, so to speak? Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's like, uh, uh, almost, you know, that egg preserve thing. Right. It's, you know, we had some really good guidance by, you know, Jack and some of those early people that set the egg preserve up. Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize is that they got death threats. Hmm. Uh, you know, people say, Oh, the, you know, everybody got on board. No, not at all. Right. Uh, they, it was, it was a tough road, uh, to fight. There were a lot of people that wanted to highly develop Napa Valley. Right. Uh, turn it into Santa Clara Valley. Yeah. Right. And, and the potential was certainly there for developers to do that. So, uh, you know, we're constantly fighting that balance of how do you do low income housing, traffic, all those issues that are critical issues. People that come up here don't realize that we're, we're fighting daily battles right. on those. Um, to get to, to your question, the battle is, okay, you've got all these wineries with very expensive hospitality programs. How do you find the balance with the hotels and the restaurants? Right now, it's out of balance. Yeah. Uh, you talk to my neighbor down the road, uh, not down the road, actually, at the end of the block, Cindy Paulson. Mm -hmm. you know, and she started uh, Cindy's. Yeah. Uh, been an amazing restaurateur all her life. Good yeah. cookbook writer. I think most a lot of people know her. Yeah, they're listening to this. A big part of Napa Valley. Yeah, and and I've sat down with her, and she's heartbroken 
uh, because, you know, the wineries used to come and support her business a lot. And now they've taken a huge portion of her business away from her and the restaurants. How do you find that balance? Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I think we need to stay vigilant and realize what's happening and, and think about, okay, how can we find the balance? I'm always trying to find a way to, to work. In fact, I just uh, sent an email out yesterday to uh, a friend of mine who manages a, a very famous restaurant right here. In, in the, and I said, you know, I want to bring more business to you. How can we find ways to do that? You know, is, okay, I'm going to bring maybe three of my wines to open up with some friends. I, it, actually, the occasion was uh, I was bringing my friends from other wineries that we want to share just like we're doing here today, yeah. other wines, but we want to go to our cellar. How do we find a corkage settlement? Right. You know, we know that we have to pay for your glassware and the service that's here, but how do we find something so we can rate our sellers a little bit more, bring more of our business and have a relationship with you that brings more business to you. So I, I, I did this yesterday. I'm hoping more winery owners are doing the same thing. How do we keep our restaurants, you know, uh, how do we, how do we help build their business just like we used to? Yeah. Yeah. What are corkage fees these days? I mean, it's Sonoma. All I think they over might, the place. I think they might be 15 bucks, right? Uh, they're around 35 really? in yeah. Sonoma. And wow. I think they're around 50. Okay. Um, and everyone has different rules. They do right. a one for one, or if you, you can't bring a wine that's on their list, right. um, is, is one of the things, but, um, but those were always respectful things. Like you knew not to bring a bottle of a wine if it was on the list. And no, stuff. no. I think because you're in the wine industry, you think people know that, but I, yeah. 90 something percent of regular diners didn't know that they just brought, but it, but it's weird when you're in wine country, when you're in Sonoma or Napa, when people have cellars, um, people belong to wine clubs and they want to bring those wines in to, yeah. to come to your restaurant right. and they don't understand what they know, what the wine costs them. And then when they see it on your list for two and a half times what they paid for yeah. it, then they have an issue with that. And, and I totally get it. And, and I think Sandra at the girl in the fig took a, good attitude about the fig cafe in Glen Ellen, which she said, well, I'm just, um, I'm honored that you would want to bring in that special bottle of wine to have with my food. But at the end of the day, alcohol, especially liquor, but then wine is, is number one and two of, right. of what restaurants make money on. I mean, the food, the food is, is probably third. Um, it's, it's liquor sales and then wine sales. So to keep them in business, you know, you have to sell liquor and you have to sell wine. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm always buying uh, McLaren Syrah by the glass with the girl in the thick. If they, <laughs> if, if they have it. <laughs> I'm into it. That's it. I mean, yeah. I, I support those guys. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I can't remember the last time I took a bottle into a place. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone's got to eat. So it's it's right. just a matter of figuring out. And and I like that you called the restaurant owner and said, because I, I would appreciate that if I was running a wine program and someone called me and I, I would say, of course, we, we want you to come in and frequent the establishment and 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 bring maybe bring someone who's never been here before. And so they can kind of see what it is that 
that we do here that's that's cool and different and um and you know you got to have robert cayman does the same thing in sonoma i don't think he's ever bought a bottle of wine um off uh, off a wine list of any restaurant that i've worked at he brings in you know, three or four different bottles and, and he even opens them himself, which I don't know is legal, but, um, he, he, he doesn't he trust anyone Bobby. to pop the yeah. corks. In some um, States it's not, I, I, I think, I think yeah. you might get away with it in California. I'm not yeah. quite sure about yeah, that. He doesn't trust many people popping those corks, but, um, but I think just having that conversation with people is, so at least there's a recognition. What, what they don't like is when it's sort of, you bring those bottles in and then you act all the huffy that, oh my God, we're, we have to pay corkage on these. Right. If you have a conversation with the person who's leading the wine program or the owner of the restaurant and everyone's fine with what's happening, um, then, then it's a win-win. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what we're drinking now? Now, this is um, the Beckstoffer Topolon 19. As damn I said, we've worked. What's that? It's damn good. Yeah, it's yeah. it's damn good. Yeah, I, I agree. I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it on the pour a little bit here and put put it on the lazy Susan here for everybody. Yeah, maybe talk about the difference between the nineteen and the eighteen because the um, yeah different vintages and and the wines. Yeah, I, for sure. Um, and that's what certainly keeps you know, as a winemaker, it keeps me fascinated is, uh, they're not dramatically different, but there are little things that are different. Uh, in 18, we, uh, we kept the Cab Franc separate, uh, with a little bit of co-fermenting. And in 19, which is the only time we've done that before was in 16, which won that redoing the Paris tasting. Jeff and I, and this is the great thing about not having a board of directors or whatever that tell you <laughs> that you got to do the same thing yeah. every year. Uh, we felt the, the best Tokalon that we could make was actually all the blocks together, which is very rare. Right, and, and was that the first time you'd ever done that? Uh, again, 16, other than a little bit of Franck that we kept off to the side, mm -hmm. 16 was everything in. Okay. 19 was everything in with all of Franck in there. Right. So, yes, it was maybe the first time everything was in there. Yeah. I mean, marketing people would love that. Oh, yes, you know, you not, right. not you know, not another skew and all that kind of stuff. Right. But in let's take 2009, we made I think five different tokalons, which confused everybody. Yeah. But we had fun confusing. Well, fun, I, I, fun I, for, I love confusing people. Well, but, and that would be fun for the geeks because then they'd want to get them all and see the differences yeah. between the blocks. And but I'm for, a geek, so. Totally. I'm here, here. These are beautiful wines. Congratulations. I mean, they, this is my fallback taste right here. I mean, this John is, is a, John is a cab slut. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he lives in Sonoma. Wow, I know. Wow. Yeah, but that's what we used to drink when we went out in Chicago. Because we're always going to a steakhouse, quote unquote. And right, you know, of course, that, that was they had some big, some beautiful wines. You could, today. you had a budget to entertain people. I did. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's the ad, the agency was, business, right? You know, you, you entertain. Yeah. How long have you known Andy Beckstoffer? Andy and I actually crossed paths many times over the at least 40 years of our life and then you started buying grapes from them right 2005 when you started? was the, the first uh, time we started to work together yeah and uh yeah and it, it's it's an interesting business in that with andy and betty they're i uh, we they're friends yeah i mean we do the business and we keep business 
you know, as business, right. but we're, we're friends. And, yeah. you know, Bruce and Heather, I consider Vine Hill Ranch friends. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've said this time and time again, is that the wine business at its best and probably most productive and probably at the highest level of its quality potential is a complete business about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, it's it's not about widgets. It's not about who's going to give the, you the highest price. Uh, Andy or Bruce uh, could anytime go to other people that would pay them more. Yeah. And Andy's getting a lot of money. And Bruce is getting a lot of money too for those grapes. They're getting a lot of money. But they could, they could if they want to do a bidding war thing, they could get more if they wanted to do that, but they want to work with people that they can trust and year in and year out feel like they've got a good relationship. It's solid. It's on firm ground and there's trust involved. Right. And that's worth a lot of money right there. Yeah. And this on is, both sides. This is kind of a similar conversation that we had with Brene Royal who's running Monteroso is she's starting to let people into that vineyard and, but it's all based upon what are you doing with my grapes? Right. Um, she wants to make sure that you're being That's a good steward concept. of the brand. Yeah, right. it really is. Yeah. And they want to, they, they're very tight about that too. For sure. As you should be. Um, and they rejected people. Yeah. No, you're not making good wine with my grapes. Yeah. Well, and to your point that if he wanted to open up to a bidding war, there's certainly people there that are not getting as much as they would like. And they would probably, yeah, you're right. They would happily pay more to get more. There's that aspect too. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's crazy. But um, just to touch on this, I mean, the Tokalon is, I think, one of the wines that we think of when we think of Tor. But then also you have that, you're sourcing from that beautiful vineyard that's um, right below Dalla Valle. Um, yeah, uh, Tierra Roja. Tierra Roja, beautiful, really unique signature um, wine. And then I think you're also, uh, I don't know if you still are doing Pritchard one Hill. from Pritchard Hill. Yeah, Melanson. Yeah. yeah. So we do a little Melanson. Uh, we're working with a new one right next to Linda, a little smaller, but I think brilliantly farmed called Double H, mm. uh, Harder Ranch, which mm -hmm. is literally Linda's neighbor there. So we're experimenting around a little bit here yeah. and there. We're, we, uh, we fooled around with uh, and looking at a piece that Harlan's in and a few, and Ocendo and a few others which is what they call upper range, mm -hmm. which is a new thing. So, you know, uh, part, of, part of the wine business is also, all right, let's see what else, Yeah, you know. So we're playing around. Yeah. We're playing around with, with uh, new things. Whether they make the cut or not is, is always an issue. Right. Well, I'll expand on that. What's in the future for Tor? Well, or you, or you. Yeah, Tor. Not just the brand, but yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm at a certain age right now where I'm not going to be on the planet uh, <laughs> for the same age that I'm at for the number of years. <laughs> uh, I think that's a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, my kids, I've always encouraged the kids. I have two kids. I have a, my, a son and daughter and they're in their 30s. And they're, you know, despite all my efforts to screw them up, they actually ended up being incredible people. Um, uh, one's in film and actually does music on the side he's I think released his 
third album right now. So skip to generation. Yeah, there you go. He, much better <laughs> mu- musician than I ever was. Yeah. And can uh, you do, can you shout out the name of his? Yeah, uh, yeah. Anybody wants to go? He's got uh, uh, a couple new releases. Cooper, you know, as in Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, C-O-O-P-E-R, Kenward, K-E-N-W-A-R-D. Uh, he did worked with a band early on called uh, Glass Mountain Rodeo. You know, okay. we have Glass Mountain yep. here. And anyway, so there's some older stuff in there. But uh, but he's, he's doing a, a film. He's going to start a film project with uh, a company that's doing something with, oh, what's her name right now? Anyway, it's a famous actress. So he's doing the film thing to pay the bills, hmm. the music thing from passion. Yeah. And my daughter's, uh, she went to uh, UCSF, got a degree as nurse practitioner and is practicing in, in the Bay Area. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Second grandkid coming. Nice. So Congrats. <laughs> so it remains to be seen if they want to come back and get into this part of the business. When they need help, I'm here. Right. Yeah. If they ever want to get in the business, I'll mentor. Yeah. But I ain't going to push them right. at all. Yeah. 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 So it's the same thing with me and, and, and my wife, Susan. We've always encouraged them just to do what you really, uh, in your heart of hearts, want to do. Molly's always been the, I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, animals and pets that we had that she was taking yeah. care of growing yeah. up. The number is, it was like Noah's Ark at our house. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Cooper's always been, you know, he, he was like six, seven years old when he was making films. Yeah. And that's what they loved doing. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. What was it like working closely with Julia Child? Julia was... Uh, I think where Julia and I really had our best times is when we were talking about things other than food and wine. We talk about people, we talk about politics, we would talk about the 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 state of the the restaurant industry and the state of the wine business more than oh that's a hundred point wine or right. you know that was the greatest meal I've ever had. Uh, she was, and I, I write about this a little bit. Julia had something, and she sort of taught me how important it is. She was always curious. Yeah. She was she was not, despite all that research and those amazing books that she wrote, especially those those tomes on on French cuisine uh, that she did with Simone Beck. Uh, but despite all that that time that she spent digging in and, and researching and testing and so on those recipes and, and, and writing those books, she, she remained curious yeah. on what people were doing. Yeah. It wasn't like, okay, you know, I'm always going to be locked into this French cuisine thing. Now she was interested in what all these chefs were doing all the time. Fusion cuisine. She had her opinions, but she was really interested in trying it. Uh, so, um, you know, we'd go to restaurants, she'd go back in the kitchen and, and she would literally, which thrilled the chefs. Yeah, I bet. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you interested in? Yeah. What do you, what, you know, what, 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 what's, what's really interesting you right now? Yeah. She would, she would do that. Yeah. 
It was, it was so Did you cool. see the movie about her, and did you love it as much as my wife and I did? Uh, which one? Oh, it's Julia Julia or yes. something like that? Yes. Which, uh, what's her name that's the actress? Uh, Can't even tell you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to say, she channeled Julia. I, it, it was uncanny. I, and that's why we got to remember her name. I'll look she, it up. She. Bart's on it. I don't know. She, I mean, there are certain things that, you know, characteristic ticks that you, you didn't see that you, that you knew, but man, she did a, an amazing job of certainly channeling the voice and a lot of the mannerisms. Yeah. I mean, so, she was no slacky Meryl no. Streep. Right. Okay, there you go. That's yeah. right. She's, Somebody she's easy to forget. Though, yeah. <laughs> Meryl, I hope you never hear this, but yeah, right? you're somewhat of a freak that you can do that. Yeah. We, we certainly enjoyed it and it brought her into, you know, our conversations a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Julia and that whole relationship with Julia and people like the other Julia in that was kind of honest is, and, and this Julia got, she did not like to sit down at dinner with people that put her on a pedestal, mm. especially other women. It made her really uncomfortable, and she had enough of that. So I can understand. I think that's part of the book and maybe part of the movie is that she didn't really respond much to this woman. She didn't like fangirls. No. <laughs> she. That was a... We went to dinner many times. I sat next to her most of those times. Uh, she did not want to have fangirls real close to her. That was one of, I mean, one of my favorite things growing up was watching on KQED with her and Jacques Pepin. Yeah. Where, I mean, she would just ride him constantly. Those two, the, those two got along really well. It was some of they, the best television I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, well, they got along very well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe, and Jacques was a good sport in, yeah. um, in, in dealing with her because you could tell the two of them really loved each other, but, um, just the way she would sort of boss him around the kitchen was one of the best things ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a, um, some, there's a show on one of the cooking networks and it's called La Peach. And it's this family who bought Julia's house in Southern France where oh. the kitchen was. Okay. And they have a cooking school there oh. and they invite people and you can sign up to go cook there. You actually cook in the kitchen and they use no recipes. They like to say they cook as Julia cooks cooked. Um, just going to the local markets, right. buying what's seasonal. Um, you might enjoy the show just because of knowing her. And How do you they spell reference, it? Um, uh, P E E T C H. Oh, and I think okay. maybe that was the name of the house. Um, it, it's a great show to check out. So. Yeah, I never oh. visited her when she was in the south of France, but I visited her when she was in Boston, the yeah. Boston area. Yeah. Uh, she had a lovely house there. And, uh, wonderful kitchen. And yeah. They do a great job just paying respect to her and, and kind of her ideas about cooking. And, and it's all, the kitchen is as it was when it was on the TV show. It's right. really something. So right. anyway. Yeah. Bare bones. I wanted to ask, we, we talked a little bit about the growth of Napa. Right. Um, in your own mind, your own fantasy, your own direction, 
How do you see the future growing? What would you like to see here in 20 years? And do you have a secret way to get through St. Helena in September? <laughs> tunnels? Is there, Is there some tunnels? gate codes that we need if, to know? If I, to if I told you, they'd kill me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would love to see that we could find a way to, uh, you know, once we get back up and rolling again. Before COVID, uh, what you would do is almost from three to six o'clock going south, you would have all those traffic because you had all the workers. Yeah. And, you know, we have, we have a lot of problems that most areas like this that are very popular destinations to visit have, which is we have, we don't really have any low income housing. Right. So I, I would love it if we could find solutions to that. No one wants it next to them. Mm -hmm. uh, that has just spent as much money as they probably spent to get a place in Napa Valley. But we have to figure that out. We have to figure out traffic corridors to I would love to see a little bit more. These are easy things to say, very hard things to solve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you asked me. Yeah, I, Absolutely. So, I want I mean, to know yours. I would love to see low income housing. I would love to see traffic mitigation. Uh, I would love to see anybody that wants to overdevelop an area that is, doesn't have those solutions already in place before they develop those areas, not to be able to develop those areas. Yeah. If they get them in place, develop those areas if you want to in the appropriate ways to develop. There's not a lot left to develop in the Napa Valley yeah. Yeah. or surrounding areas. Right. It's, it's a pretty small, as far as wine regions go. You know, I just looked yesterday and I think it was, oh, the number, what would you, we have 470 something thousand vine producing acres in Bordeaux. And we're one sixth of that here hmm. in wow. the, in the Napa Valley. We're about one sixth in vine that Bordeaux is. So yeah. it, it's 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 a tight little area as far as you know. We produce, and you probably know this number, uh, four percent Mossamenos, yeah. but uh, of the wines from California is, right. comes from Napa. It's defined. So it's a very limited resource right now. Yeah. So how do you figure out labor? How, low-income housing, how do you figure out traffic? How do you keep agriculture the the primary driver of all of this? Don't destroy the golden egg right. out there with, with all this. You know, I think everybody's always, and these articles are coming out and, and so on uh, about pricing. You know, fair market will decide that. Yeah. Do you ever get over to Sonoma? I love Sonoma. I get, Are you familiar with Glen Ellen? I am. I, I spent a lot of time cutting my teeth, hanging out with some of those people over in that part. Well, of the we're, we're going through the same thing. The Sonoma Developmental Center, which was about 12 or 1500 acres, has been, you know, it's California state property and they are selling it to a developer. And now they've come down to, they want to develop, I think about 300 of those acres and put 750 plus homes in. There's one two lane road, Arnold drive in yeah. and out. And, and they always are being evacuated. You know, over the last few years, it's been Since very heavy there. 2017. Yeah. yeah. And the, 
there's no talk about the infrastructure that they're going to put. Where are they going to put a secondary road, a four lane if they need, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, Highway 12 is a two lane between Sonoma and Santa Rosa. That's it. All right. You know, there was many years ago, there was talk of Highway 12 being four lanes, right? right from Santa Rosa down to Highway 37. Right. Um, and that never happened, you know, but. Um, Eminent domain. I mean, yeah, you kind of yeah, just have to take yeah, it. We'll see. Look at how many homes <laughs> up by Oak Brook or, or Oakmont Oak yeah. that, that are right up to, you know, the fence line. Yeah, yeah, you, can, yeah. you, you can't do it. Yeah. And look at how long they took to widen 101. Yeah. I mean, that's been since I've been here 12 years well, ago. Well, on the positive side, John, that's jobs. So Absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering how the hell they're going to do it, <laughs> yeah. actually, which is what Tor's saying. Yeah. How do you manage this? Growth? Same issues they're dealing with here. They yeah. got the two roads yeah. um, that are dealing with the... So You've got 29 in Silverado, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And both two lanes, yeah. Which is a while. So what we recommend is come here in uh, January, February. <laughs> yep, right. It's a great time to come. Is yeah. right? we're just, I mean, off we, season. We, we started this uh, conversation looking out at the uh, the vineyard and your beautiful drive here. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's stunning time to come. Uh, yeah. And and if people want to come, can can they actually come and taste some of these wines? Um, uh, yes, at Wheeler Farms, uh, appointment okay. only. Uh, okay. Yeah, just uh, tour tour wines, or actually visit at tour wines. They better not. They can contact me if they want to. Okay. Uh, and uh, you, you know, it's a limited resource. Yeah. But it's there, and and I I think uh, I I think our hospitality programs are good ones. Yeah. How do they contact you? At, what's your social media stuff? Uh, I, I think it's just Tor Wines. We're, we're on, we're, and I will tell you right up front, I do not manage the social media. <laughs> I, I'll be very candid, and somebody's going to get angry at me. I don't look at it, <laughs> but hey, that's just me. A lot of people me. do. Tor. I, I I know, and and that's why uh, I have yeah. somebody that your that team is, though is doing a good job. Your website is very good. Uh, so but the website I, I do, I yeah. am interested in websites and yeah. that they work and, and communicate well. So yeah. I do, I do websites, but I don't do social media yeah. that well. Well, you and I are pretty much the same age. And, we are. And yeah. And, I'm, I'm, I'm the boomer in our group and I do Facebook and everybody else is on IG and Twitter and all that. I follow yeah. a lot of people, right. but yeah. I don't post a lot. Yeah. What haven't we asked you today? Uh, we haven't talked about satellite balloons. Uh, Good. Where's your next fishing trip to? Yeah, what's that? Where's your next fishing trip to? Uh, I, the the next one that's on the calendar is to Alaska. Uh, awesome. Nice. So, uh, but man, I'd love to get it some something in Montana or one of the neighboring states, or maybe even up to the McLeod. Yeah. You were talking about the origin of a lot of the trout that's yeah. sort of you know populated the world. And it's the McLeod. Yeah, right. Mm. The McLeod also, yeah. Yeah, McLeod, a lot of the, the, the McLeod is really what dominates down in Chile and Argentina right have, now. Have you ever fished uh, fall, the Fall River? Never have. I've heard great things about it, but personally, I never have. Yeah, check it out sometime. It's very different because it's a spring-fed creek, okay. and you have to fish it from a boat huh. because... Um, there's no land access because it rolls right into farmland. Huh. Um, and the water is so clear because it's not rough water. It's so clear. You see the fish, 
And of course they look huge because oh, they're right there. Crazy. But it but <laughs> it's just like you know how many fish are there and boy they're hard to get on. Where is that? Sight fishing is always tough. Yeah. Yeah. But it's <laughs> but I, I being a fisherman, I think you'd really find it enjoyable and challenging because it's spectacular. Right. Yeah, that's what uh, New Zealand fishing is really all about, sight fishing. And John, to your question, there's there's a lot of stuff actually that we didn't cover. And I think that's probably a good reason for people to get the book is, I mean, just yeah. talking about Andre Chilichev and um, and Robert Mondavi. I mean, we kind of touched on Julia for a little bit, but yeah, um, they're all, there, they're all in there. There's a lot of stuff that if, if people, um, definitely want to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, um, should get the book. So the book so, is, um, reflections of a vintner yeah. stories and seasonal wisdom from a lifetime in the Napa Valley. And it is available at, online everywhere. Amazon, yeah. Apple, um, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Uh, Amazing that, that they stuff. are in a resurgence right now, Barnes and Noble. I mean, they Boy, they, they weathered they, the Amazon and they are coming back. I because I, they were really hurting yeah. not that long ago. That's good to hear. I'm a huge fan because uh, my dad actually ran one at one time uh, of the, yeah. the local bookstores. So uh, I will also do, I'm glad that we have all this online stuff, but uh, support your local bookstores. There you go. Joan and I yeah. watched You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah, day. yeah. And You're watching all these rom-coms. <laughs> wow. It's Valentine's Day is coming up. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's just fascinating because he was putting the little bookstore around the corner out right. of business. Right. You know? yeah. and, and I, you know, we went through that in Chicago. I was always into Crocs and Barry Donald. Yeah. You know, yeah. The pendulum swings, John. It always uh, swings swing back one baby. way and then it comes back. So yeah. just like you're... Don't get rid of any of those big wide ties or skinny That's ties exactly that you have because right. they will come back. Hey, vinyl's coming back. I saw you've got a turntable in there. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah vinyl's been back. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that's my second. That's my second set. I have a whole other vinyl system in the living room area nice. over here. So. Nice audio techniques turntable there. That is actually sort of my stable one. I have a whacked out uh, one that I could show you after this. That's absolutely in, in there. It's an old it. straight arm, uh, very rare. You know. No, it's a it's a one of those handmade old Yamaha oh, ones nice. that with the old straight arm on. It's kind of cool. Well, this has been awesome. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Wines are amazing. I, I think yep. I think we solved most of the problems. The world. I think we did. I think we, we should. did in one sitting. Tourwines.com. Isn't it yeah. interesting to sit down and have these conversations? It's yeah, and, and that's a great place maybe to end it. You know, uh, we're we're I'm noticing that I think we're slipping a little bit back into the little bit of that prohibition type of thinking and talking. I'm seeing it a lot out there uh, there's a lot of media attention for dry this dry that mm. and you know i i and so on there's just a lot more noise about that out there uh, I, I think everybody's got to find their own world but the one thing i hope we never lose is the ability to open a bottle of wine at a meal or it's rare that we can do what we did where we just sit down and talk on a show like this, but to open a bottle of wine with a bunch of people around the table and let a few hours disappear. Yeah. yeah. Talking, finding common ground, maybe laughing, maybe sharing a story or two. I'm, I'm afraid that's on the verge of extinction. And I think that if we start outlawing wine or making it a little bit less of a cool thing, 
I'm, I, it, it worries me as an old man. We're trying hard to keep it alive. I think you guys are doing a great job. So <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. It's appreciated. Thank you. You know, we keep growing. It's a very positive thing. So you guys got any shout outs today? Uh, no, I mean, we got our normal stuff that we're doing. But you guys, if you've last listened to the last couple of shows, you know what we're doing. Some dinners at the Fairmont and, um, and a big tasting coming up. But more to come. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me. I, you know, the garage tea tasting um, and spring releases are on their way here soon. Yeah. So getting ready, um, getting ready for spring. Yeah. My daughter is excited. I dropped her off at school this morning and she said, you know, in a couple more weeks, I, it, it'll be like summer. And I said, no, it'll be spring. But you can I, tell she's already excited. Look outside here. It's yeah. spring, baby. Those flowers yeah. are beautiful. Uh, you yeah. know, a little shout out to um, Danny Fay for yeah, thank you. putting oh, them thank together you, with us. Yeah. We know that Danny's actually still listening right now to the recording. So we'll just leave this as we'll let you know some good stories about Danny. Oh, he's usually offline. taking his nap in the office about this time. <laughs> So you know Nap. Nice. You know Dan. Right? <laughs> nice. That's perfect. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Peace and love. We are out. Thank you, Tor. All right.